okay, that's enough. <laughs> Thank you, sound team. All right, Stevie Wonder. <sighs> People are like, what's this music? What is this? <clears throat> I remember in the old Dharma Hall over there, which was very beloved trailer, and I led the first um, days of meditation and dance. So I'm a, a long-term student of the five rhythms, and um, so we'd have these days of uh, meditation and integrating dance and movement and big sound system. And I think the first one we did, there was a monastic retreat up the hill. <laughs> I was running around shutting the windows and <laughs> hoping the monks wouldn't hear. And, and, I, I, and, and as people were rocking out in, in the, the, the ecstatic part of chaos, um, I could feel the 2,500-year-old Buddhist tradition starting to tremble. Like, no, <laughs> what's happening to the Dharma? But it was great. It is great. It's great to integrate movement and play and joy and celebration and love and passion and all good things. <clears throat> So how was the cupcakes? Good. I was thinking about revising the theme of my talk depending on how much sugar-laced people were going to be listening. Yeah, I'm really present now. <laughs> now I can meditate. <laughs> Do the 44 foundations of mindfulness. <laughs> Sorry for those people watching who didn't get the cupcakes. I didn't have one out of sympathy and empathy for your non-cupcake plight. So we're in this together. My blood sugar is very steady. All right. So um, I'm curious um, what that meditation was like for you. Um, so the you know generally when we guide meditation, certainly in here. Well, let me give a little backstory to, 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 to why that particular flow sequence of teachings, and then I'll, I'll hear from you a, a little later. Um, so, so, as you might know, the, the teachings of the Buddha were transmitted orally for you know, four to five hundred years before they were written down. So, and you can imagine how that goes. You have a conversation with a friend, and then your friend talks to another friend about the conversation, and then they talk to somebody else about that conversation. You know, by the time it gets to the fourth friend, it's like, I didn't talk about that. That's not what I said. Right? So you give that a few hundred years. I mean, it was slightly different in that, in that time, you know, in, in, in the... You know, certainly in northern India and in other spiritual traditions, in the oral tradition, there were people who were very skilled in memorizing quite exactly oral teachings. And so they were preserved uh, you know, with a fair amount of precision. But it's still an oral tradition. It's not a written tradition for, for, until 500 years after the Buddha died. So there was a lot of room for 
error. There's a lot of room for addition and and uh, synthesizing teachings and for um, just for there to be interpretations. And then when they get translated uh, to a different uh, country, different language, different culture, then of course there's there's, there's more variations. In the same way that when we translate the text from Pali or Sanskrit into English, you know, we're making adaptions to the teaching, you know, fitting our own cultural reference point and you know, contemporary understandings of words and emotions and concepts. And so um, the so the 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 main translation that we use is from. Um, the Majjhima Nikaya, which is a body of texts um, that was preserved in one of the early Buddhist schools, of which there were 17 early Buddhist schools. And um, there were variations in the north and the south of India in terms of uh, schools. And um, so my understanding goes the, the southern school went to Sri Lanka, where it was translated and preserved, and that's a lot of where we get the Pali Canon, which is the main body of Buddhist teaching from the Theravadan tradition. But there was also other schools that then translated their version into Chinese when the teachings went to China and um, into Sanskrit. And so there's variations in the there's three main bodies where the, where the, the early canon of the Buddhist teachings can be found. And and uh, and so the book that I was studying and that Analia has been teaching from perspectives on Satipatthana synthesized or, or, or synthesized. Um, he basically looked at all three bodies of teachings on the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. I hope this is not losing too many of you. <laughs> if it is, just let it go over your head because it's okay. <laughs> Doesn't really matter except unless you really want to be precise about where these things came from. But the, 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 the point is, basically, he took these three, same teaching, different translations, slight variation, and basically looked at what was common to each three of the texts and, and, and allowed that to come to the, the foreground and the other stuff to come to the, the background. And, what, and, and then, because of his scholarly understanding and analysis of, of the, of the of the text and the commentarial literature was able to make some sense of what to bring to the foreground, what to put in the background. And as a consequence, you, the, 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 the Satipatthana teaching, the four foundations of mindfulness teaching, is seen in a slightly different light. And, um, and you know, I've been studying that, this text for 30 years, so it's, it's really fun when some, somebody reveals a different perspective on a teaching that you think you know and have memorized and studied, and then someone says, well, actually, it's a little different than that. And you go, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not how I learned it. And then we get, so we see, you know, it's good, to, it's, good to, it's good to have the rug pulled a little under what you think you know and what you think is, you know, we all get a little dogmatic and what's the right way and the true way and, the, you know. So um, this is, um, just as an aside, this, I've read this before here, but it, it, it's it, worth reading because it speaks to, there's many people in this room who've, who know this teaching a lot. 
so this is from R.D. Lang, psychologist, psychiatrist. He's talking about knowing and not knowing. He says, there is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. Right? So if you're sitting here and maybe you've been a long-term stu student of Buddhism, you think, oh, I should know what he's talking about. The Four Foundations of Mindfulness? What's that? The Satipatthana? What's that? There is something I don't know that I'm supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, and yet I'm supposed to know. And I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. <laughs> Therefore, I pretend to know it. Because why wouldn't you? This is nerve-wracking. Since I don't know what I must pretend to know, therefore I pretend to know everything. I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. So there you have it for not knowing, or not knowing that you don't know. <laughs> so, um, so back to the teaching on the, 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 the four foundations of mindfulness. So, so what's interesting to me as a, as a, as a practitioner, uh, and, and using this, this, this key teaching as a, as a basis for practice, is that what, what, what this reinterpretation uh, of the teaching brought to light for me, and I think for many people, was that the, the four foundations of mindfulness, it brought out its insight dimension. Not that it wasn't an insight-oriented practice before, but, and I think it's particularly relevant in this time, right? So we all know mindfulness is, is in. It's vogue. It's hip. It, everybody wants it. Everybody's studying it. Everybody wants their kids to learn it, and their CEOs to do it, and their doctors to do it. And you know, it's 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 exploding in the culture, here, and everywhere I go. It's a good thing for the most part. And there's a lot of misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what mindfulness is. Because when any, when, any, when, any, when any time something explodes exponentially and gets far from its roots and its origins, you know, there will be some you know, not full, there will be some misinterpretations of that, as there is. And one of the things that's happening as I see it, and I'm very much in that world, I, I run mindfulness teacher trainings, I teach mindfulness at Google and in healthcare and to school kids and in prisons, and like I've taught mindfulness in a lot of different places. I've taught in Africa and in Europe, and um, that there's an association of mindfulness with attention. Mindfulness means paying attention, or mindfulness yeah, and there's a there's a limitation of the of the context and the scope and the capacity and the potential of what mindfulness is, which is ultimately in service of understanding, clarity, of insight, and of liberation. Liberation into what? Liberation into the human condition. Liberation into what causes suffering and what causes allows for freedom. Right? But when it gets reduced to paying attention. We lose that insight dimension. If we think mindfulness means paying attention to your breath, we don't understand what mindfulness is. 
we might understand a little bit about what focus is. So, um, so for instance, and I think this is really well uh, highlighted in the, in the first foundation. So in the first foundation of mindfulness, in, in the text that I grew up and studied with, the, 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 the text proceeds from the gross to the subtle in the body. Gross is body posture, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, moving around, breath, and then moves to, and then through the, through the rest of the text moves to, to, to feeling, states of mind, and other facets of the nature of experience. And um, in this, in this uh, way that, um, that I led the, the meditation today, we went more to the insight components of the reflections on mindfulness of body. We looked at anatomical parts, we saw, and I'll say a little more about what, the, what that means, and the elements and the impermanent nature of the body. So when we take out the breath, and we take out awareness of the postures, and we just focus on the anatomical parts, which is the nature of the body, the elemental nature of the body, and the impermanent nature of the body, we're paying attention to the body, clearly not just to be aware of the body, but to develop insight into what? Into its nature. Its nature is it's a bag of skin, flesh, and bones. Right? It's not what we get sold in Cosmopolitan and you know, whatever other beauty industry or whatever we might be in, but from one perspective, the body is skin, flesh, and bones. The the, 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 the more fuller teaching is reflection on the 32 parts of the body. Skin, flesh, bones, hair, muscles, sinew, pus, blood, bile, you know, it's not very alluring. (laughs) It's like, ooh, Pus, ooh, blood, ooh, urine, ooh, let's reflect on that. Mm, that's very pleasant. Right? You know, it's in the context of developing insight to develop, you know, the 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 point is to see to cultivate a healthy uh, relationship to the body that's not overly identified, since the body, as we know, gets old, gets sick, and will die. And the more identified, the more painful that process is. That doesn't mean to say we don't respect the body, we don't appreciate the body, we don't marvel at its wonders and love what it is, but we also know the body is the body, and it's, at the end of the day, it's skin, flesh, and bones. And then the second reflection, the elemental nature of the body, this is one of my favorite practices, as many of you know, I, I do a lot of my teaching and practice outdoors, and this teaching becomes very obvious when we reflect on the elemental nature of the body. You know, again, this teaching, why are we reflecting on the elements? We're seeing the, 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 the interconnected nature of our experience. You know, the, the way our mind and brain and ego functions is the, the, the sense of constriction and narrowing of our lens of attention to this mind-body that we create this sense of self or me or my or I that we wrap our lives around, 
that we believe ourselves to be independent and fixed and separate from this flow of experience. You know, maybe you walked on the land today. You know, you, we took a walk, you know, just wherever you walked on the land, beautiful here. Or wherever you, maybe wherever you took a walk today, maybe you walked, you know, across the parking lot or you walked in the woods or... And when you take a walk, for the most part, we have the experience. I'm taking a walk through the park. I'm taking a walk through wherever you are, you know, forest or whatever. As if you are not part of that experience. That you're looking at the forest as something separate. We don't think of ourselves as part of the earth's moving surface looking at itself. I love this idea that we're part of the earth's moving surface. We think, we talk about being on the earth <laughs> as if we're not of the earth. Okay? We are the earth's moving surface, tied by gravity. And we literally, not just metaphorically, come from the earth. Right? We just ate the earth in the form of very yummy chocolate cupcakes. Right? That's earth element, it's, you know, minerals and you know microorganisms and soil and you know that was a, you were eating plants, right? You were eating wheat and sugarcane and canola and I won't go on too much because they all raw, <laughs> right? But you know we think oh it's flour, sugar, and something else. Right? That's plants that came from the soil, that was fertilized by maybe, you know, other plants and leaves and... And that's now becoming your cells. We are becoming cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) But we're becoming earth. We're constantly, you know, we're becoming earth. In the same way that when we drink, it may be easier to get, maybe this metaphor, or not metaphor, reality. You know, we drink water, right? Amazing, this amazing thing, this molecule. We often think we drink and we piss it out and it has nothing to do with me, (laughs) except it quenched my thirst. But I'm still me, this is water, and urine is urine, and I'm me, and never the twain shall meet. I mean, that's how we, it's kind of logic, that's how the brain sort of conceives, it conceives things as separate. Right? But if, you know, one of the things I love about teaching nature retreats is you know, maybe we camp by, a, like I just was teaching up at Balacitos, this wonderful mountain ranch I teach at in New Mexico, and um, we drink from the, the spring from the mountain spring. And, you know, I often spend a, long, a lot of time there, so maybe I've spent, you know, 10 days there this last few weeks ago. So after 10 days of drinking the mountain spring, right, if my body is 70% plus water, right, I don't know how many days, but I imagine after 10 days, I am mostly mountain spring water. Right? And that's real. 
like that spring water has become cells, blood, fluid, pus, bile, and all those other yummy things. <laughs> right? I mean, if the liver replaces itself every five weeks, right, then I'm sure the, the, the water and the, the fluid in the body, if, if there's a biologist out there who knows this fact, I'd love to know how, how quick it takes to replace all the fluid in the body, but I'm sure it's very quick. We are part of the hydrological cycle. We are rainwater, and we are clouds, and we are ocean, and we are Mount Tam watershed, and Eel River, and Sierra Nevada snowmelt. I mean, that is real. It kind of sounds nice, but it's also real. <laughs> you know, we're intimately tied to this landscape. So when we start to reflect on the elements inside and the elements outside, same elements, it changes our relationship to experience. We, it, we, we don't feel so other. We don't feel so separate. We don't feel so alienated. There's an intimacy. There's a connectivity with life. There's also a growing respect for life. Because if this is me, and it comes from the Eel River and the watershed and the Sierras, I want to care and protect that land and mountain and cycle and do what I can to mitigate climate change. Because there'll be less of this, as we know. Aside from last year, there was less of this in California, much less. So we reflect on earth, water, fire, the heat of the sun. You know, we know it's obvious when we're standing outside or when there's an absence of sun, we feel the immediate effect. You know, with these elements, we, you know, without food, we last, what, a month or two? Without water, we last a few days, two days, three days. Without fire element, without heat, could be a few hours, depending on where you are. Maybe here, you, I don't know if you'd live, if you slept on Mount Tam, you know, without proper clothing, you wouldn't last very long. And then with air element, a few minutes. Very inter interconnected. So, so it's a lovely practice. I, I do this practice a lot, especially when I'm outside, reflecting on the, on the, the elements, the elemental nature of our experience. The air element. You know, we're breathing the same air. Some of, the, some of the molecules that are bouncing around were at the time of Jesus and the Buddha. Same molecules. Some molecules don't morph in the same way that others do. And in that, in, in the elemental nature, we see that we see the impersonal nature. We see the interconnected nature. We see that we're not this separate, independent thing that we think we are. We're actually just part of the earth that happens to be quite intelligent and very sophisticated and thinks a lot. And as Jack said, we've gotten very good at moving this, you know, this hole here to put stuff in and this hole out there to let go of it. And we have these limbs to move us around to get more and put it more in. It's not very glamorous, but you know.
And then the third reflection is death. Always a popular one. So I, I invented a mantra for myself on, on this retreat that I was studying, reflecting on and the invitation is to imagine this, la- this, this inhale being your last inhale. Which it might. And one day it will be. What would that be like to be at that moment, the last inhale? And you realize it isn't, so you let go, you relax, and the exhale. Oh, another one, good. But the mantra that I made for myself was one less, one less, one less, one less, one less meal, one less full moon, one less conversation with a beloved, one less Dharma talk at Spirit Rock, one less Monday night for you. One less spring. One less seeing the California poppies. It makes it very real when we say, oh, one less spring in my life because I lived through this one. Not to feel depressed. If this, is, if this makes you depressed, this isn't a useful reflection. The point is to, and, I, and I'm serious about that, you know, the, for, for, the, you know, for some people the death reflection doesn't lead, isn't onward leading, isn't inspiring, it's depressing and therefore not a healthy practice. Right? We want to find, you make use of these practices. Some are useful, some not so helpful. Right? But for some of us, I think for a lot of us, for me, when I think about one less, one less spring, one less full moon, one less evening at Spirit Rock, I want to make the most of it. I want to be here for it, because I don't know how many times I'll be here at Spirit Rock. I really don't. I hope I'm here for decades and decades. But I don't know. We don't know. None of us knows. There's not a week goes by that I hear about someone who's either seriously ill, dying, or has passed. You know, and it gets more as we get older. Very real. I was hearing about a person recently who uh, this person was telling me about someone they knew and they had uh, uh, gotten cancer at a youngish age and was fought it tooth and nail because she felt she was too young and it wasn't fair. Life's not fair. It happens when it happens. So one less. So part of this death contemplation is one imagines oneself as a corpse. In that mode of lying, you know, like in state. At your own wake. I actually heard of, I was reading about someone who who had a wake for themselves when they were still living, which I thought was a really great idea. <laughs> you know, all your friends and your family and your relatives come over. Much better to do it when you're still alive. Yeah, I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> a 
So, but you know, it's a very powerful practice to reflect on one's mortality, on and and, and therefore on the fragility and the preciousness of life. Kind of, you know, helps help us helps us get priority. What's important, and of course, and then we forget. You know, we have amnesia and we get on with our lives and get caught up and. You know, get frustrated because the bus is late and our faucet is leaking. And so, the first foundation of mindfulness: the body is body, body is elements, and the fragile nature of the body—that it's vulnerable to be in a human form. That line from Mary Oliver at the end of one of her poems, which one is it? Summer's Day, where she says, What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's true. So, one wild and precious life. Or in another one of her poems called When Death Comes, she says, you know, When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn. When death comes like a sharp blade between the shoulder blades, I want to step through that door wondering what will it be like, that cottage of darkness. And so I look upon everything as a brotherhood and as a sisterhood. I think of each body as a line of courage, something unique and precious to this earth. I think of each name as a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does, towards silence. When it's all over, I want to say to myself, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's all over, I don't want to find myself feeling frightened and sighing. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world when death comes. That's a beautiful poetic turning of that reflection into inspiration. I want to be a bride married to amazement. What a great one thing, great thing to have on your, in your gravestone. I was a bride married to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, so the second foundation is the feeling tone. So we reflected through the body the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral quality, neutral tone, effective tone. There's no English word that describes this quality. I wish there was, because it's very clunky. Effective quality, hedonic tone. But we know it, right? We know when we hear the sound of birdsong or we hear a nice bell. Oops, that was unpleasant. Right. Or we eat cupcakes, or we sip 
nice warm tea. Mmm, pleasant. Find a nice comfortable chair. Lie in our beds. Stand in the morning sun. Have the caress of someone on our skin, warm touch. Very pleasant. We live partly for those pleasant moments. We long for pleasant moments. And they are very elusive. Bells stop ringing. Birds stop singing. Your cup of tea goes cold, as they say in England. Your cup of tea goes cold. A cup of British real tea. (laughs) And it goes from pleasant to unpleasant because it's cold. I I walk around with a a thermal cup, you know, because I don't like cold tea. (laughs) Because I want to maintain that. You know, as human beings, we're amazing at preserving and maintaining pleasant experience. It's called air conditioning. Okay. Little too hot, yeah, we get the cold air on. I can feel the cold air right now. Little too cool, we get the warm air on. And this constant need for homeostasis. We have about two or three degrees of temperature fluctuation that when it goes above or beyond that, we feel unpleasant. So we buy an air conditioner. So we notice that pleasant and unpleasant quality in the body. Like right now, notice where you're feeling pleasure or pleasantness in the body. That feeling of the cupcake, just that mm, kind of pleasurable, sweet. Or maybe you had three cupcakes and now you're feeling the unpleasantness, which is kind of gross and kind of sicky and like, oh... Or you're tired. It will be unpleasant. You want to go home and you're stuck listening to this talk and it's unpleasant. (laughs) Could be. Been there. So constantly changing. So there's awareness of it in the body and there's awareness of it in the mind. So it's an interesting reflection. To feel the feeling tone quality in the mind. Right? right now, what is the feeling tone of your mind? Maybe it's neutral. Maybe it's pleasant because you're enjoying this evening and the, and the reflection. Maybe it's unpleasant because you're tired or you're distracted or restless or who knows what. Disagreeing. Or it's neutral. If it's neutral, you don't really notice it. How many of you notice the color of the wall behind you? Not this wall, that wall. You're not supposed to notice the color of this wall. It's neutral. It's an off-white. That's why most buildings are off-white neutral. It's not going to be unpleasant to many people, unless you can't stand off-white because every building is painted off-white and it's kind of boring. (laughs) Aside from that, you know, it's sort of neutral because you, 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 it allows the other features in the room to stand forward, like the lights. Which to some, so here's the thing, so, which to some may be pleasant, but some may be unpleasant. 
the nature of pleasantness and unpleasantness is not in the object but in the perceiver. So I'm experiencing the cold air from the air conditioning, which I'm experiencing as unpleasant. But for some of you, it's very pleasant. And that could switch depending on how hot or cold you are. So, so you might say, well, who cares? I don't care whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. What's the big deal? Why do, you, why do they go on about this? Why is this a whole foundation of mindfulness? There's four foundations, four main areas we can pay attention to. Why does this little thing that we don't even have a word in the English language, why does this have one of the four pillars of attention? It's a good question. Why would the Buddha say, pay attention to this thing, this pokey little thing called Vedana in Pali, feeling tone? Anybody have an idea why? So I'll go in like this. Right. So what if I said this? So this is pleasant, right? Hopefully for most of you, unless you have some trauma around bells, in which case you probably wouldn't be coming to a Buddhist center. And then... Could get really unpleasant. <laughs> unpleasant. So what happens when we get, when we feel unpleasant? Right? Tense, contraction, an- aversion, anger, hatred, fear, judgment. Right? A lot. Right? Very instinctual. Pull back, withdraw, get away from. Don't like. Don't want. I was, so I was reflecting on what to say today. I live in Sausalito, mostly pleasant. And today the city was um, trimming every tree that they could find. Not trimming, yeah, uh, yeah, tr- yeah with the chainsaws, chainsawing. Um, and it was unpleasant. <laughs> in fact, it was so unpleasant, I left the house <laughs> and came here very early. Um, because it would create contraction. Yeah. With mindfulness, the, the reason why we pay attention to feeling tone is because with mindfulness, we don't have to be so driven by that chain of reactivity. You know, if I do this, you can already start bracing. <laughs> if you're aware of it, It's just sound. You may notice the unpleasantness, but the, there's a little, the, the mindfulness allows a space between the stimulus and the response, the stimulus and the reactivity. So when I was aware of the unpleasantness of the chainsaws, I was just like, ah, oh, unpleasant, it's a drag, I wish they would stop, but oh well, it's not my business whether it stops or not. And then when I wasn't mindful, <laughs> where's the city number? I'm going to call them. <laughs> Why is it? No, I, didn't, I wasn't doing that. But, you know, my mind was not very happy. Reactive. Reactivity equals suffering. Right? It's a very simple equation. When we react to the experience of the moment, equals suffering. Present moment experience times reactivity equals suffering. Right? It's a simple Dharma equation. 
in the same way that if you really liked those cupcakes and thought it would be very un-Buddhist to have more than one, because you know we're supposed to be renunciate and non-grasping and not be you know fueled by desire, right? But we really wanted a second one. <laughs> Because it just tasted so yummy and we didn't have dinner and it was just in that fat and cream and sugar and chocolate. Mm. Right? That's, you know, I'm with that, that desperate kind of, nah, I've got to have that next cupcake. I'll sneak out of the break and grab one. Sneak out during the talk and grab one. Right? That's the reactive mind. Experience times reactivity is suffering. Has anybody wanted something today that they couldn't have and suffered around it? <laughs> Is that a silly question? <laughs> All right. That's the teaching. Right? We either want something or we want something to not happen. Right? But we're just wanting. Same thing. Right? When we're not mindful, that wanting becomes that pleasantness or well, the desire for the pleasant becomes grasping, becomes height, becomes tunnel vision, becomes violent sometimes, or at least hurtful of others around us. How many times, how many times, well not how many times, but think of a time that you've hurt someone because you were wanting to get something that you wanted and it was to the detriment of somebody else. It's just part of being human. But when we can be present to the pleasantness or the pleasure or this wanting it, we've we've interrupted that, that pattern, there's freedom. And the true test is we're going to bring the cupcakes in, we're going to put one on your lap, and we're just going to have you sit with it for a while. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Because they're probably all gone. (laughs) Anyhow. And the neutral, of course, when things are neutral, we don't notice. We space out. Much of our experience is neutral. So what do we do? We make something up. Neutral's boring. So we start thinking. Sitting, following your breath, breathing in, breathing out. It's really boring. Breathing in, breathing out. Let's have a sexual fantasy. It's much more interesting. Now, this is interesting. Now I'm, now I'm paying attention. Right? Or whatever the fantasy is. That's what we do. We make stuff up to make it interesting. Or we check out and we don't even know where we've gone. And then the bell rings and it's 20 minutes into the sitting. So that's the third found, second foundation. The third foundation is really just what I've been talking about. The mind that's reacting to that feeling tone. The mind that's grasping. I want to get a piece of paper to just demonstrate that. because it, It's only my talk. So the mind that grasps, it, 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 you know, it destroys experience. You know, when we grab a, you know, when we attach and demand a person be a certain way, right? It's, it's, a, it's a painful thing for everybody involved. 
So what, what I love about the third foundation reflection is the Buddha's asking people to pay attention to the presence or the absence of. And in meditation, it's really interesting and illuminating to pay attention to the absence of things that we're normally gripped by. So pay attention to the presence or absence of grasping. Pay attention to the presence or absence of fear or anger. Pay attention to the presence or absence of delusion. So when next time you're sitting, pay attention. When there's an absence of wanting, of resisting, of delusion, and taste that moment of peace, the moment of freedom, when there's a temporary absence of those things that usually kind of just drive us and drive us a little nutty. It's a beautiful thing to actually, but oh, look at that. In this moment, there's no wanting anything. There's no fearing anything. There's no delusion or distraction. There's just presence. How beautiful. This is a moment of freedom, moment of nibbana. And then we go, cool, wow, moment of nibbana, I'm pretty good. Got this one down. Wait till I tell my friends how good it was. And then we've gone on some story. We start telling our friends how cool our meditation is. We start creating YouTube videos. Me in a moment of nibbana. <laughs> Gets a lot of Instagram likes. And then lastly, the fourth foundation I somewhat whiz through, and I'm going to whiz through it now in the explanation because it's late and we need to go home. Uh, the fourth foundation, which I also particularly like, because the, the, there's, there's a lot of pieces of the teaching being taken out. So the fourth foundation, for those of you who are familiar with it, the, the pieces that Analio leaves in are basically the obstacles to and the supports for awakening. The obstacles to awakening are the hindrances. Grasping, aversion, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. And the supports for awakening are the, are the factors, these beautiful qualities of mind that when we're, particularly in meditation, when these qualities are present, the mind is poised and balanced. Energy, joy, no, energy, investigation or curiosity and joy, these are the energizing factors and the calming factors, tranquility, concentration and equanimity or equipoise. Yeah. So when these qualities are balanced, you know, it's a very poised mind that's lucid, clear, and ripe for insight and understanding. So, and that's partly the work in meditation is working with the hindrances so they're not obscuring our presence and we're cultivating these wholesome qualities that come either naturally or intentionally. So that's sort of the trajectory of this, of this practice of mindfulness. That's sort of like the... the the foundation of the practice. And then we use that to be present in our lives for whatever we're present to.
So I'll close with this short poem of sorts by a poet called Bokanan. Life is a garden, not a road. We enter and exit through the same gate, wandering. Where we go matters less than what we notice. Where we go matters less than what we notice. So in your week this week, may you bring awareness to these domains that you can be present to. Body, feeling, states of mind, supports for awakening. So I just want to share a few things that um, Romy was going to share about, but didn't before the break. Um, just a few things, that uh, teachings that are happening here. Um, so I teach this online course um, called Essential Buddhist Teachings. It's a lovely course. It's a, it's a 30-week course. It's three 10-week semesters, and it's opening now for registration. The next section of it is on the Eightfold Path and Compassion. And I'm also back here teaching a day long on July 15th on something. Day of a day of mindfulness and compassion, I believe, something like that. Opening the heart, freeing the opening the heart, cultivating the mind. Freeing the mind, cultivating the heart, something like that. Uh, this Saturday, I'm very excited to announce that I'm starting to do local um, half-day and day-long meditation in nature events. I do some here at Spirit Rock, but I'm doing them now off-site, and I'm going to do a half-day uh, meditation and hiking day, um, mostly in the headlands, and we'll be meeting down at Rodeo Beach. Um, for information about that, go to my website, markcoleman.org. M-A-R-K, Coleman.org. Uh, it'll be a beautiful day hiking and meditating along the bluffs uh, of Marin Headlands. And I have a bunch of cards um, that are in the, in the foyer on the table um, about my meditation in nature programs. One of them, my Baja programs that I've just done but are coming up again. Not coming up again, they're coming up again next year, but there's information but also my teacher trainings. I run mindfulness teacher trainings and some information about that. I'm starting a new one this year and next year. This, ne this year in England, next, next September in San Francisco. And um, so if you like information about that or whatever else I'm doing here or elsewhere, go to my, my website, markholman.org. But other than that, very happy to be with you. Happy anniversary. Come back for the next year. <laughs> or 10 or 20. Thank you very much. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.